Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel. And as uh, we have been covering the Apostles' Creed, named after the original 12 apostles, there are 12 assertions in the Creed, thus uh, the name Apostles' Creed, one for each of the 12. And it's about 1,800 years old. Every stream of Christianity acknowledges these 12 assertions of the Creed to be the foundation stones of what we believe in the Christian faith. And here's what has been exciting to me. I've actually noticed, I, I can sense that your faith is actually growing. It's good for us to affirm our faith and to reaffirm what we believe and to remind ourselves what the cornerstones, foundation stones are of our, of our faith. And so your faith gets stronger as a result of that. Now, sometimes our faith is weaker. Faith can grow stronger and weaker depending on circumstances, and it's always good to build your faith, make it stronger. And so I can tell that that's happening. We have uh, covered the fact that we believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Last week we covered our belief in the universal church, the church everywhere in all time. And if you were here last week, you know the definition of the church. Who is the church? You and me. It's we are the church people. Don't think denomination, don't think institution, don't think buildings. None of those things are the church. The church is the people of God. And so God is building us as living stones one upon another into this holy temple that he can possess. And so we believe in the church. And today we come, in spite of all that good news, there's been lots of good news that we've learned in these weeks, but today now the good news is focused on us. Because we rehearse the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. I've chosen as our text this morning from the Psalm, Psalm 103. I'm going to read the first 12 verses from Psalm 103. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll project these words on the screen. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word so as you're able. Thank you for doing that. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what King David said. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Somebody say, thank God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And may God inspire and encourage us through his word today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Last year when Donald Trump was campaigning for the Republican nomination for president, he was asked this question. I doubled back and found this uh, video and looked on, at it on YouTube this past week. And he was asked, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And he replied, Quote, I'm not sure I have, 
I just go and try and do a better job from there. If I do something wrong, I think I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, a few days later, he tried to temper his comments, you know, and kind of double back on that once he got some advice from, from people who understand forgiveness a little better. But I suspect his perspective is what many people feel. And that perspective is the theory that they believe in, in the forgiveness of sins. You know, theoretically, I can understand maybe there's a God and he forgives us of our sins, but the concept doesn't really apply to me. And I think that's where a lot of people probably live. Kind of out of touch with their need, out of touch with God's ability to forgive. I want to answer three questions this morning. It's on your outline. I hope that you'll follow along, maybe fill in some of these blanks. And the first question that I'd like to address is who needs forgiveness? Who needs forgiveness? Now, the primary for sin, the word sin in the New Testament, the concept is uh, hamartia. It's a Greek word that was used by ancient archers, which simply means to miss the mark. So you've got, you got a target out there, and you pull back the bow, and you release the arrow, and you're aiming for the target, and you miss. <laughs> it means to miss the mark. Barely miss or miss by, by a lot, it's still missing the mark. And as human beings, we miss the target all the time, don't we? in words and deeds and thoughts. So the word points to a fundamental existential truth that all of us are in touch with. We're sensitive to this, that there's an ideal that we're meant to live up to as human beings, but we all fall short of this ideal or this mark or this target. We can connect with that. So missing the mark is really a great term to use, and as the Bible unpacks it in the New Testament, it's a great term to use for sin, missing the mark. Perhaps you've seen a list of the seven deadly sins. These are the traditional sins called deadly sins. I'll put, a, put, them, put the list on the screen for you. Take a look at these. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, anger, envy, pride. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you struggle with at least a few of those once in a while? Let me just make my confession. I struggle with just about all of those every day. And those are the big ones, the seven deadly sins. In fact, how about this? How about next year we, we do a whole seven-week series on the seven deadly sins? What do you think? And, we'll, and you can invite your friends, and we'll all get together. We'll start with lust, and we'll just go through the whole list and remind each other how bad we are. Wouldn't that be fun? Let's, let's do it. What do you say? Anybody? <laughs> okay, I deserve it. <laughs> hit me. Hit me one more time. We won't do that. But missing the mark isn't merely this list of really bad sins that we engage, but think of the other side of the coin, where we are called to virtuous living in the character of Christ, maybe evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit. And so you hear that list, love and joy and peace, and you say, boy, I could use more of all of those, and patience and kindness and goodness. Well, who doesn't need more of that? And so we realize that regardless of which side of the coin you're thinking about, you know, the dreadful sins on one hand are just failing to live up to the standard. On the other hand, we all fall short, and it's easy to miss the mark. There's a beautiful prayer of confession for sins that comes out of the Anglican tradition, and us Methodists come out of the Anglican roots and traditions. And I wanted to show you this beautiful prayer and put it on the screen for you. And it goes like this, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And by what we have done 
and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Yeah. So to be clear, we sin by the things we think and say and do. These are sins of commission, and we sin by things that we should do, that we fail to do. These are sins of omission, and all along the way, we are in touch with the fact that sin is part of our lives. And let me just say out loud what all of us know. Sin can enslave us. Sin can rob from us joyful, abundant life. Sin, just in general, overpromises and underperforms. You've seen it, perhaps in your own life, in the lives of people you care about, that sin has had a destructive, devastating, and in some cases, evil effect in your life, the lives of others. And from time to time in our world, we see it raise its ugly head in devastation and in loss of life. Sin is present among us. And sometimes we get the impression that, you know, if other people were just a little better like me, then we wouldn't have this kind of crises and consequence in our world as a result of sin. But I found this quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn, you may recall, was a very strong-minded follower of Jesus in Russia during the atheistic, communistic years there and uh, served time in prison, but authored uh, very profound works. This is one of his quotes. I want to put it on the screen. It gives us good perspective. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It's true, isn't it? Look how the Apostle Paul summarized this, this question from Romans 3.23, and you'll note, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Occasionally, you'll run into someone who is a good-hearted person and, and means well, and they may push back on this subject and say, um, you know, I'm a good person, and I'm essentially good. I don't try to do harm to anyone. I try to do the right thing, and I know I'm a good person. And so, you know, this, all this business of forgiveness, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the kind of person that when I die, God will look at me, and he'll smile on my life because I've been relatively good. And you occasionally run into folks like this. Let me just say about maintaining an illusion that suggests that you're good and you don't need forgiveness. I submit to you that it is reflective of a massive lack of self-awareness. Self-awareness is exactly what we need to get in touch with the fact that we sin, we fall short, we miss the mark. Self-awareness is what informs us about our need to turn from sin and to embrace a different life. Self-awareness is what will help us conceive God correctly and our relationship with him in the right perspective. And so a person who can't admit they're self-absorbed or materialistic or lustful or boastful or unloving or stingy or anything else is a person who needs to better understand who they are and come to terms with their need. So the question is asked, who needs forgiveness? And the answer is all of humanity needs forgiveness. We all do. You do. And I do. Now here's the second question I want to answer about this subject. And that is, will God forgive my sins? 
Will God forgive my sins? Now, this is an important question. Would you agree? Some people do not believe they need forgiveness, as I've mentioned. And other people have just the opposite experience. They will say to you, and maybe you have acquaintances like this, it's almost like they wear their dark heart and their bad attitude and their sinful behavior is like a badge of honor. When you say to them, you know, maybe, would you like to come to our small group or would you like to come to church and, and I'd love to share this part of my life with you. And they may chuckle at you or laugh at you and dismiss you and say, are you kidding? If I showed up at church, the ceiling would cave in as soon as I walked through the door. You know, and so you just go, oh, yeah, you're one bad sinner. You're just one old bad dude. Yeah, yeah, you're hopeless. You're even beyond the reach of Almighty God. And yeah, not even Almighty God could erase your problems. And you hear people with this kind of attitude. Some people actually struggle with excessive guilt. Now, I'm not talking to a lot of people in the room right now, but I'm talking to some of you. You have come to believe that God is displeased with you. No matter how hard you try, no matter how well you perform, God's not happy. He doesn't want you to have joy. He doesn't want you to feel peace. He doesn't want you to have the assurance of forgiveness. He wants you to live in a perpetual state of excessive guilt. Now, friends, you have to stop that because that's not true. You may feel it. You may live in it, but it's not God's intention for you. Now, having said that, excessive guilt, there is a place for guilt. You know, the old adage is the reason you feel guilt is because you're guilty. And so some of that is actually helpful. It's called a conscience. It, it's, it helps you feel conviction so that you can turn from your sin and receive God's forgiveness and walk in freedom. So part of that is a good thing. But excessive guilt, overwhelming guilt, stems from, typically stems from a misconception of who God is. You misperceive the character and nature and heart of God. You think that he's just, you know, waiting for you to mess up. And he's got this big hammer. And as soon as, as, soon as you raise your ugly little head, he just, bah, he just pounds you on the head. And you constantly feel the weight of it. And you can't be free from it. One of my favorite authors uh, from the past, his name is J.B. Phillips. And J.B. Phillips, classical Christian author, wrote this little book entitled, Your God is Too Small. Don't you love the title of that book? Your God is Too Small. I love that. And he notes that many of us have this conception of God that's been shaped by our parents or by other Christians that don't accurately reflect reality. And among the misconceptions that Phillips mentions is the God of absolute perfection. Now, again, I'm just talking to a handful of you, but if you'll hear this, it'll help. And this is a God of absolute perfection who requires that his children be perfect. And Phillips notes that this conception of God has taken the joy and spontaneity out of the Christian lives of many people who dimly realize that what was meant to be a life of perfect freedom has become an anxious slavery. That's a helpful term, anxious slavery, rather than joyful freedom. Beth and I talk about this all the time, and we wonder about Christians who don't seem to be happy. This is one of our, it's one of the things that is most disconcerting to us. There doesn't seem to be any joy. It, it, it just seems like so many Christians are going through life, and they're not having any fun at all. Let me just, let me tell you something that's true. If you're not having fun, there's something wrong. 
The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. This is where we get our strength. This is where we get vitality. This is where enthusiasm comes from because we're joyful. Jesus has promised us abundant life, super abundant in quantity, superior in quality. That should make us happy. Of all people in the world, the people who have been set free from their sins and no longer living under the shame and condemnation of their own guilt are the, are the people who should be the most happy of all. And even right now, that's where the amen should go in a sermon, but because we are so distorted about this, we don't know what to, what to think. So the preacher gives us permission to be the life of the party and have some fun, and we go, we're not sure about that. What, what is he talking about? He, he's asking me to like be, be happy? <laughs> that sounds risky. Sounds dangerous. People might get the wrong impression. They may not think I'm pious or I'm godly or I'm holy. They'll think I'm not holy. Yeah, that's it. I can't have too much fun. People think I'm worldly. <laughs> what is the matter with you? What is the matter with us? What is going on? Come on, man. God calls us to a joyful, joyful life. The, the phrase Catholic guilt, quote, can now be found in the, dic in the dictionary. People who live with excessive guilt, who cannot al allow themselves to be happy or to enjoy their life because they feel guilty if they do. Come on now. We, we, we have to be free of all of that. So all along this spectrum, I'm a good person, I don't need forgiveness, all the way to the person who says, I'm so bad, not even God could, could, could cleanse me of my sin. And everything in between, here is what the, here's what we learn from the truth of Scripture. You remember Joseph, betrothed to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He receives in a dream a revelation about what is coming. And the archangel says to Joseph in a dream, your betrothed Mary is going to become with child, conceived by the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. And this is what the Scripture says, you will call him Jesus. And then this tag because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. Two, two summers ago, I decided on my time away, we, Beth and I usually spend a few weeks at the lake every summer, and I always have some kind of devotional plan as we go into those weeks. And two, two summers ago, I decided I would read the Gospels, and I would only focus on those private interchanges with Jesus where an individual or just a handful of people would be exchanging with Jesus. Because I wanted to know two things. I wanted to observe how Jesus related to people interpersonally, and I, and I wanted to identify with the people who were attracted to Jesus, who were drawn to Jesus. And, it, and it's interesting. So I would get in my canoe, paddle out in the middle of the lake with my waterproof New Testament, and I would start reading. you got to be ready, just in case. And so there I was... And I read the Gospels, and again, I would speed read through the sections where he's talking to big crowds or something else is going on. But when he's interacting with people, and I noticed three groups of people who were especially drawn to Jesus. They were, they were magnetized to Jesus. The first group were children. Now, now think about this. Children who had never seen Jesus, never met Jesus, if he, if he happened to go, be going through their town or their village children would actually come out and they would, they, would be, they would just go to him. They would run to him. 
Right, so what's, what's going on with Jesus that children feel secure, they feel safe, they feel warmth, they feel loved, they feel accepted, they, they are drawn to Jesus? And it's just it's a really fascinating to me. Children. Of course, one occasion, we, we get some unpacking of this phenomenon when children are all around him and in his lap and you can hear them giggling and you can imagine Jesus having fun with them and the disciples, the entourage, saying, let's get these children away from me. Come, stop bothering the master. You know, we've, we've got a... We got a keynote following lunch today, you know, in the next town. Leave the guy alone. And Jesus said, no, no. These are my folks. These are my people. He said, don't you realize the kingdom of God consists of such as these? Talking about the children. And he said, and by the way, you can't come to me. You can't know me. You can't have a relationship with me unless you come to me just like these children have come to me. Pure of heart, sincere in their faith, just embracing me for who I am. No pretension, no qualification, just as a child. So make note. And then there was a second group of people, and these were folks that identified as seekers of truth. And these folks came from all stratas of society and from different cultures. You saw, you saw people who were, who were poor and kind of down and out, and they wanted to know the truth, and so they would quiz Jesus. And then you saw people from other stratas, the most wealthy in the community, the most political, politically uh, connected in the community. You saw Roman centurions. You saw all kinds of people in different situations who were drawn to Jesus because they were seekers of truth. Now, uh, let me challenge some of you in the room. If you are a person who hasn't embraced the truth and you're a seeker of truth, God bless you for that. Here's, here's what Jesus recommends. If you seek the truth and you do so with your whole heart, you will find. Seek and you will find, he said. Knock on the door of truth and it will be open to you. Ask and you will be given the truth. And so this is a wonderful promise. So you had children and, and truth seekers who were drawn to Jesus. Now here's the third group and this is the point I want to make. The third group that I realized were magnetized to Jesus were people who were identified by Jesus' critics. His adversaries, his enemies, actually used this phrase one day. And it was a group of religious people, religious leaders, Pharisees at the time. And, you can, and this is the phrase that they coined, the enemies of Jesus. And you can hear one of them in Jesus' presence. And this is what he said. And this Jesus, and you can see his nose turn up. You can imagine this. And this sarcasm come to his voice and the tone. He points to Jesus, and this Jesus, he's the friend of sinners. He's the friend of sinners. Jesus heard it, and he goes, that, I like that phrase. I love that. I'm going to put that on my resume. In fact, if you see a resume from Jesus right now, it says Jesus Christ right under it in parentheses, the friend of sinners. Now, when the Pharisees use the phrase sinners, who are they talking about? They're talking about people who are down and out, people who are on the margins, the poor, the sick, the needy, the, the prostitutes, those, those with addictions, those, those with real trouble, with real dysfunction. With, with, with real hopelessness. These are the sinners. 
And the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus because sinful people were drawn to Jesus. They, they, they were magnetized to him. Can you get your mind around that? Can you, can you put that in the context of your own life, your own experience? If you want to find out how much like Jesus you are, just ask the question, do children like to hang around you? Do people who are seeking truth like to talk to you? Do sinners like hanging out with you? I don't know what that does to you. That's provocative to me. That's challenging to me. I remember sitting in my canoe going, dang, I got to find some more sinners to hang around with. Really, I got to find me some sinners. And I was so moved by that. Jesus goes to the Last Supper and he says to the disciples, he takes bread, he says, take and eat, this is my body. Then he raises the cup and he says, take and drink for all of you. For this is the covenant of my blood for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. Jesus hung on the cross and he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The thief right next to him, he said to the thief, this very day you will be with me in paradise. In other words, you're forgiven, pal. Post-resurrection, before the ascension, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he met with disciples and other people over a period of 40 days. And on one occasion in Luke 24, 47, he said, the forgiveness of sins must be preached to the whole world. And the mandate was given. The forgiveness of sins. As a pastor now for 40 years, I've heard confessions of every kind. People confessed affairs, addictions, abortions. I've heard just about everything. And anytime someone confides in me, I lead them through a process of repentance, reminding them of God's patience and kindness and mercy. I try to help them understand root causes when poor choices have been made to understand why they would incline themselves that way. And then I remind them of God's grace and the power of forgiveness because God wants to forgive us and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul summarized it this way, 1 Timothy 1.15. Look at it on the screen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Back to our reference today, Psalm 103. Look at these words again. God won't always play the judge. He won't be angry forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin or repay us according to our wrongdoing. Glory to God. And because as high as heaven is above the earth, that's how large God's faithful love is for those who honor him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sin from us. Now, that's amazing. If you start out heading west, at what point do you connect with east? You know the answer to that. You can go west for the rest of eternity, and you're never going to run into east. And what God is saying is, I will separate you from your sins forever never to remember them again. It's amazing grace. 
Will God forgive your sins? Yes. Yes, not only will he, he wants to. He stands ready to. He longs to. He's made provision to. And you can be forgiven of your sins. Now, there's one more question, and we have to ask it in this contest. We can't let it go, so we have to ask it. And it's, must I forgive others? Must I forgive others? So the question then, how do we respond to being forgiven so greatly, so lavishly, so wonderfully? What is the right response to being forgiven? And, of course, the answer is to forgive others, to forgive others who have sinned against us. God not only is reconciling sinners to himself, but he is reconciling us to one another and, indeed, ultimately to the whole creation. God's going to redeem everything, reconcile everything. That's his ultimate plan. Now, you remember this story from Matthew 18. You've all heard this story or some version of it. And Jesus told this parable, and it was about a, a rich king, a magnanimous king, merciful king, who had a man standing in front of him who owed him $3 million in today's terms. Three million bucks. And he was about to throw him into debtor's prison. And the man starts begging for his life, begging for forgiveness, begging for release from the debt. And I have a wife, and I have small children, and they'll become destitute, and they need me, and please, I beg you. And he's, he just is on his face begging the king for forgiveness. And the king, who is a merciful king, feels the man's request and relieves him of his $3 million debt. How many of you know that's a big deal? How many of you know that's a good day? I've had, I'm having a good day. I just got out from under a $3 million load. And so the guy's on his way home, and he runs into a friend of his who owes him $3. Owes him three bucks. He remembers, that guy owes me $3. And he grabs the guy and he shakes him and he smacks him about his head and face and he threatens him and he says, you pay me back. You no good for nothing. And the king finds out about what this guy has done and he is enraged. He is so upset and he has an order released and this guy is rearrested and thrown into debtor's prison. And the king just goes, how did you miss that? Don't you realize that you should have forgiven the man who owed you so little after having been forgiven of so much. And when you hear the story, I mean, the story, I mean, you could tell it to a third grader, right? And the third grader goes, we should forgive people. Everybody gets the point. And when we hear the story, we go, what is wrong with that guy? What kind of a doofus is he? What kind of a dope? How dull, how dumb, how disconnected does he have to be to miss the point. How did you miss the point, dude? Because the point is so clear and so obvious. And so we feel toward him real animosity. What a dope. Now, wait a minute. Now hold up the mirror. From what and how much have you been forgiven? It's a big load. And now, to whom do you need to extend forgiveness? Now, you may be a person right now, and you're saying, oh, look, Pastor Greg, you don't know what they did. You don't know what they said. You don't know what pain they caused me. It, it ruined my life. The, 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 the mistreatment, the evil, the sinful behavior, me word, has altered my life. I'll never be the same. 
I cannot forgive them. Listen to me carefully. I'm not asking you to diminish or dismiss what they have done to you. I'm not asking you to suggest that it is of no account. I understand grievous, horrible, even evil things have happened to you, to many of us. What I'm suggesting to you is that the only way to live your life in freedom is to put yourself in the forgiveness loop. God has forgiven you. You are made whole and you are set free. And the only way to maintain that wholeness and freedom is to forgive those who have trespassed against you. And this cycle will continue throughout our lives all the way to the end, needing forgiveness and offering forgiveness. It's the only way to be free. Otherwise, you not only keep the person who has offended you enslaved in your unforgiveness, but you also keep yourself in bondage to that unforgiveness. And it's no way to live. And so the right response to having been forgiven is to forgive others. Ephesians 4.32, forgive each other just as Christ in God has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Matthew 6.12, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Matthew 6.14, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Do you see the blockage? See the hindrance? See the obstruction? Unforgiveness will keep the flow of God's forgiveness flowing toward you. So the scripture makes it absolutely clear that our capacity to receive God's forgiveness is linked to our forgiving others. So forgiveness is saying, I choose to release you from your debt toward me. Maybe they haven't earned it. They don't deserve it. They haven't asked for it. They're just as bad and corrupt and nasty as they've ever been. Has nothing to do with it. I choose to forgive that person. And I choose to release myself from the burden of keeping an account of those wrongs suffered. And when I do that by an act of my will, an act of my volition, a choice I make, I choose today to forgive you, to release you from the debt, and I choose to release myself from the burden of keeping account of it then I can be free and live in the forgiveness of God. Now let's pause for a moment and think about that and pray about these things. Would you bow your heads with me? Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there someone in your life you need to call, you need to write, and ask forgiveness? Maybe this day, today, you need to connect with someone and ask their forgiveness. Is there someone like that? How about is there someone whom you yourself need to forgive? And again, friend, I'm not dismissing or diminishing or suggesting that what happened to you didn't matter. 
That's not the point at all. I'm asking, will you choose to release that person from the debt they owe you? And will you choose to release yourself? Is there someone whom you yourself need to forgive? And it may be someone who has already died. That's true for many people. If that's the case, listen, you must still do it before God and declare them forgiven. I'm talking to someone right now in this room, and the person you need to forgive is yourself. You forgave God. It took you a while, but you did it. You forgave God, and you forgave the others. That took a while, but you did it. You chose to do it, but you cannot. You refuse to forgive yourself. You say, I can't believe what I did. I can't believe the choices I made. I can't believe that I let myself get into that situation. I just cannot forgive myself. I ruined my own life. Listen to me. You don't have to be defined by the worst things you've ever done. No. And you don't have to be tomorrow what you have been in your past. God wants to forgive you. He wants to. He's waiting to. Remember, He's the God of a second chance, of a new beginning. He's the Savior of new hope, fresh, fresh starts. So God offers you a new life for the old. Grace, redemption, forgiveness in exchange for guilt and shame. So all you need to do today, friend, is to ask God to forgive. And He will forgive your sins. So hear the good news. Listen to your pastor now. Hear the good news. In the name of Jesus Christ, and on the basis of His merit, His sacrificial life, death and resurrection, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Separated from your sin as far as the east is from the west. To be remembered no more. Remember, God won't always play the judge. He won't be angry forever. And He won't deal with you according to your sin or repay you according to your wrongdoing. Thanks be to God. You are forgiven in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.